Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What tends to happen is curiosity starts to kind of go down because we've worked out the knowledge that we need to get by in the world and we're no longer exploring, we're just exploiting. Always think, what can I learn? What can I read? Who can I talk to in order to kind of get a new perspective on this? So A, it's kind of the urge to get yourself off the beaten path, go and read something different, go and do something different. But also it's making sure that you specialise, you have a few different things that you're always building on existing kind of bodies of knowledge in your long-term memory. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I've long been fascinated by or curious about curiosity. I love how often incredibly intelligent and wise people throughout history have pointed to it as the thing that defines their success, as though it's their secret source, not just a a nice-to-have quality. So as Albert Einstein once said, I have no special talent, I am only passionately curious. Eleanor Roosevelt declared, I think at a child's birth, if a mother could ask a fairy godmother to endow it with the most useful gift, that gift should be curiosity. Also, as some of you might recall, in a previous episode, I interviewed Dr Judd Brewer. He's a New York-based neuroscientist who has found that curiosity is indeed a really great fix for anxiety. It opens the mind, the whole process of being curious. It opens that part of the brain, the amygdala, which is very associated with anxiety, and it does it in such a way that it can crowd out anxiety. Awe and curiosity both do this, according to, to Judd, which is wonderfully curious. I say I'm curious about curiosity, but maybe more to the point, I'm curious about how some people are just not curious. I'm wondering how that can possibly be. And I've observed more broadly that the world seems to be getting less curious, less open to the free flowing pursuit of knowledge, unhindered by too much ego, by agenda, by outcome. Our way of learning and expanding has become way less playful, I feel. Curiosity in so many ways is antithetical to the ways of the world today where we trade in certainties and immediate answers. But how does this stack up in a world which, as I've said many times here on this podcast, is becoming more uncertain, more unpredictable, in which old ways of going about knowledge acquiral are becoming defunct with, you know, the advent of AI and so on. To get some answers on this, I met up with the author and journalist Ian Leslie, whose work I've followed on Substack. He has a a newsletter called The Ruffian. We met up at the We Are 8 offices in Bloomsbury for this interview, and there's a little bit of background noise, but not too much. Ian is a former creative strategist for some of the world's biggest brands. He now writes about psychology, culture, technology and business for The New Statesman, The Economist, The Guardian and The Financial Times. He also is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. 
He's done podcasts and big, long reads on polarisation, and he wrote a book entitled Conflicted, Why Arguments Are Tearing Us Apart and How They Can Bring Us Back Together. And his latest book is called Curious, The Desire to Know and Why Your Future Depends on It. In this conversation, we get quite urgently to this very wild point. To survive going forward, we need to reclaim our curiosity, to see it as Einstein and and Roosevelt did, as vital to the human experience. Ian and I cover why some people are in fact incurious and what's stopping us from being more curious and how we can retrain the curious muscle in our mind. Okay, let's meet Ian. So lovely to be sitting opposite you on a dreary day in London. I know. Don't you love this country? It's I, terrible. I know. You're very British and I'm sure you're about to apologise on behalf of, I, I don't do, know, the weather. I, I do feel bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> I first came across you on Substack, actually. I'm a keen Substacker. Yours is called The Ruffian. Do you enjoy it? I love it. Yeah. It's, it's really sort of changed the balance of my writing life. I now kind of write about whatever I'm interested in, every week or every couple of weeks, and people read it. You know, I have sort of, whatever it is, 15,000 subscribers, and they give me lots of interesting feedback. And it's just a wonderful thing. So I'm, I'm very thankful to the, uh, the Substack gods. Yeah, for, me too, uh, me too. It it's a very considered environment. I mean, it's almost like what Instagram was like in the very early days, and Twitter, to be honest, where it was a place where we could flesh out ideas, thrash it about, and then dot, dot, dot stuff happens, doesn't it? So hopefully it won't happen to Substack. The founders, I know, are very adamant that the way it's conceived doesn't lend itself to sort of trolling, but we'll see. No, you can you can just, you can express yourself at greater length. And basically that... Well, that's that, the difference, That's the it? difference. And, and it means that you can put in much more context. What social media tends to do is, is strip out all the context. So all you're left with are, are these kind of series of tiny little points in a box. Mm. And, and that, that tends to trigger people because they have no kind of wider understanding or context for what you're saying. Yeah, and Substack requires a little bit more enrolment, particularly if you've got the, the paid subscription stuff on. So the people who are there are there for a reason. They choose to be there. They yeah. want to be there. So I want to talk to you about curiosity, subject of one of your books. What actually prompted you to write about curiosity? Was it that you really like curious people and don't like non-curious people? Well, it was kind of it's almost as simple as that in, in that I, I'd always thought it was interesting that there was this big divide between people, as far as I can tell, just in people you meet, right? You sit down, you say you're placed next to somebody at lunch or, or, or dinner, you can tell within a few minutes whether or not that's a curious person. You can tell within a few seconds, actually. There's a kind of light behind the eyes of a curious person. And they're genuinely interested in you, and or they're generally interested in ideas or, you know, things out there in the world and they want to have a really kind of interesting conversation, right? And they want to learn stuff maybe. And you sit next to an incurious person and it's not that they're rude, right? They could be perfectly polite and they can go through the motions of being having a conversation, but they're sort of dead behind the eyes. Yeah. And, and, and it's just sort of struck me like, why? Why is that? Why do some people 
become curious and some people kind of stay or become incurious because it seemed like such a sort of straightforwardly good thing to me. It makes you interesting, makes you, I think it sort of makes you happier and, and you have a richer life. And yet so many people are just not very curious at all. So I did actually start, you know, a lot of the time my articles or books start with a kind of fairly kind of dumb question. Like, why are some people curious and some people are not? And let's start there. And then I started to sort of research and I found it was an absolutely fascinating topic in its own right. And I got curious about it. Yeah. I, I, I'm wondering if there's some sort of important evolutionary imperative to curiosity rather than it just being a kind of nice added extra to the human experience. I get the sense that there is probably some purpose to it. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you are the, the person in your, in your tribe or, or, or group uh, settlement who actually goes off the, the beaten track now and again and seeks out new ways to, to get food. You know, I mean, this is a very kind of simple, but actually I think pretty kind of well-established theory of, of why we evolved to be curious. You know, those are the people who bring new information and, and, and new sources, ultimately new sources of, of, of food and energy to, to the camp. And so, you know, in, in any given group, it, it helps to have people like that. Those people tend to be higher in status and therefore more likely to to pass on the genes, et cetera, et cetera. But, but yeah, I mean, that, and that certainly makes mm. sense. But you've made the point in the book that curiosity hasn't always been, I suppose, deemed fashionable or perhaps more the word is it, it hasn't been celebrated at certain times in history. Yeah. What dictated that? Like give us a little bit of a feel for curiosity's fashionability, you know, if we can call it that throughout yeah, history. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's only relatively recently that we have started to talk about it as a positive quality that a person might have, right? Now, you know, we tend to celebrate curiosity. Oh, well, that's a curious person. But of course, you can still see traces in the language of uh, a sort of wariness or suspicion about it, right? So oh, a curious person is also an odd person, right? Mm. Somebody might want to be a little bit suspicious of, we have these phrases like curiosity killed the cat, right? And that's because actually for, for most of human history, curiosity has been something that people are wear, wary of because it threatens to question and, and maybe overturn established norms and ways of doing things. And people are kind of suspicious of people like that, especially if they're in power. There's a wonderful quote from the writer Vladimir Nabokov. He said, curiosity is the purest form of insubordination. Yeah. Uh, if you start to ask, you know, why is the world like this and not like this? Why do we do things like this and not like this? Why is that? then the people who want you to think this is the way things are will get a little bit wary and, and annoyed with you and they'll try and kind of put you in your place. And so it's really since the growth of kind of broadly speaking liberal democracy and kind of post-enlightenment and society where and the scientific revolution and so on, we started to say, well, actually, there's these huge benefits to people not accepting the way things are and asking why it couldn't be like this and then pursuing their curiosity. We started to see it as a good thing. But I think we still have traces of that, mm. that suspicion, that wariness of it. If I got this right, I think you also parallel it with the rise of cities and mm. and that sort of interaction with strangers has a big part to play in curiosity becoming something that we pursued and valued. Yeah, so, so cities you know, which kind of really took off, again, only in the last sort of few hundred years. Well, they, they've kind of gone up and down over the last couple of thousand years, but, but the big kind of conurbations that we're, that we're used to. 
they throw people together, right? They throw people together from all sorts of backgrounds. That's kind of the, the point of a city, if you like, right? You, you come from the country, from all sort of different parts of the, of the countryside, and you come to the city to, to make a living. You end up living next to somebody from a completely different background to you, right? Different religion, different ways of talking, different ways of, of, of thinking. And you have to find some, some common ground, A, so that you don't end up in a fight, and B, ultimately to start kind of building communities and then build, and building businesses, finding ways to, to make money as well. You know, the rise of um, markets and capitalism is a big part of this. We have to kind of learn how to, to, how to get along with each other. And that means, you know, starting to get interested in each other, starting mm. to think, well, OK, well, that's, you know, I, I, if I suspend my judgment about this person for a minute and say, well, why do you believe that? What, what is your faith or, you know, what, what is your idea? And, and what, then we're going to get along together and maybe something will come out of the interaction. So, yeah, the, the great kind of urbanization in the last couple of hundred years, throwing lots of different people, different backgrounds together, led to this kind of explosion of, of both human and intellectual curiosity. Yeah, and prior to that, I think people would travel, but that was a very select kind of few who could afford to travel. And you had to have a certain type of, I guess, uber curious nature to be the person that, you know, heads yeah. off and um, brings back news from over the hill. Hey, guys, think, yeah. somebody has invented the wheel. Maybe we well, should get onto this. Exactly, exactly. And, and yeah, and you do, you do reads, you know, especially kind of around... 16th, 17th century, as the world starts to to open up, people kind of extolling the virtues of, of a kind of curiosity. So Montaigne, 16th yes. century French writer, says, you know, we, we should seek out people from different backgrounds because we like to kind of rub and polish our brains against people who are different from Ironically, us. Ironically, he goes and sits in a castle though in the end, doesn't and then, he? <laughs> and then he says, he stop cares. that, I'm just going to go to my castle and read books, which sometimes I, I, I you know, deeply empathise with. Mm. And, but you write you know, about that in the book, don't you? Yeah. You write about this kind of push-pull that we've always had, the desire to head out into the world and then to return. You know, it's the classic, you know, Homer's odyssey, it's the hero's journey, you know, and that's yeah. a big part of it, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, curiosity is, is bound up with that sense of exploration. But right right from when we're, we're babies or small children, we, we like to explore and we like to come home, right? Those are the two things we, can, we do. And, and the safer that our home is... Right, so the more secure that we feel, the more loved we feel at home, the more we explore, right, sort of slightly paradoxically. Because, you know, you see a child that feels secure and feels loved, you'll mm. see them kind of running around all over the place, right, which just makes it really hard for parents. But those two things go together, the sort of deep, deep, deeply rooted human impulses. And, and it's sort of, there's a great sort of phrase or, or, or concept from, from, actually comes from computer science, where they talk about exploit versus explore. And we all have those kind of two vectors in our head. We, we either want to exploit the knowledge that we've gained on our explorations, or we want to go on more explorations and get more knowledge so that we can mm. exploit it later, right? And we, we all have that kind of trade-off. Yeah, and you see, you see it in stories too, like you say, that it's sort of Odyssean stories and Star Wars, whatever. There's urge to kind of go out and explore and then come back and show people what, or, uh, and apply what we've learned. It's one of the great kind of constants in human history. Yeah, it's how we've evolved. You know, our knowledge systems have evolved. I suppose... You know, today we can contrast things today because you write in your book that we're suffering from a serendipity deficit, which is an interesting way of saying we're we're vastly less curious. And that's something that I've observed. It's a big reason why I wanted to get you in on this podcast. Why are we growing less curious? I mean, I think the internet and technology is an obvious um, answer, but I'm almost a bit tired of that as the answer to all of our ills. I'm sure there's some more nuances there that you can 
share with us? Well, I mean, the the, the internet and social media and etc., Google etc., are um, double-edged swords. They are the greatest tool for curiosity ever invented, and 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 they're also the kind of the greatest tool for incuriosity ever invented. And part of the reason I wanted to write the book was was to say it's up to you. You can kind of become incredibly curious and use these tools as as you can use them or or you can use them to become incurious and many people will there's there's a divide opening up really i think this this going back to the beginning of our conversation you know some people are kind of disposed to be to stay curious as they get older and become more curious some people are not there's always been that i yeah. think that kind of divide but what the what the internet does is kind of push people in in either direction what do you know it polarizes us it polarizes i mean it does it with us. everything doesn't yeah. it you know actually i always say that Technology is not the problem. It only enables our our sort of either best or worst instincts and, of course, extrapolates it and sends it off on this kind of exponential trajectory. That's exactly right. One of my favourite quotes from, from years ago now about the internet, but he got it exactly right. I think it was Kevin Drum. He said, you know, it's not a question, is, is the internet going to make us smart or stupid? The internet is going to make smart people smarter and stupid people stupider, right? And and, and it's the same with, with curiosity. You know, it, it will make curious people more curious and incurious. So what I'm saying is, in the book, is really kind of, let, make sure you get on the right side of that divide. And that means thinking about it and putting some effort into being curious. It's not just something that's going to, it's not just a gift, right? It's not just a thing, that, a gift mm. that keeps giving. It is in childhood, but 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 the the, the way it works is that once we've learned our way around the world, you know. Let's uh, talk about that because yeah. you actually distinguish diversive and epistemic curiosity. Do you want to explain that at this juncture? Because I think it's quite interesting because I think it's it's knowing the difference there that gives us the opportunity to be more mature with our curiosity. That's right, yeah. So this is a, a distinction from the, the psychology, the, the psychological literature on curiosity. And I think it's really kind of worth bearing in mind for everyone. So the terms are a little bit technical, but it's pretty simple, right? So diversive curiosity is the hunger for for new information, for for novel uh, information. It's the hunger to kind of solve a puzzle, get the answer, right? Like the the curiosity we inherently have as a kid, right? I think every kid has it. Yeah, every kid's kind of like wants to go say, hey, what's what's there? What's going on there? What's what's that shiny thing? Mm. Why, why, what, 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 what? And both physically and and mentally, they're kind of constantly going, hey, what about this? What about this? Hey, what? And as adults, you know, our diversive curiosity is stimulated all the time, particularly in the kind of modern technological environment, right? Every time you see an email subject, it was a pop-up on, on, yeah. Ooh, on the screen. bright, Ooh, shiny thing. Bright, shiny thing. That's diversive curiosity. Epistemic curiosity is accumulating knowledge, right? So the two are connected, but they're different. So epistemic curiosity is saying, okay, this bit of information here, this links up to the bit of information I already have in my head, and I'm starting to build a pattern here, and I'm starting to build kind of depth of field, depth of understanding mm. about this particular subject. Now, epistemic curiosity requires something more than a kind of willingness to, to go, oh, shiny thing. It's not necessarily so impulsive. It's more something that you have to kind of train yourself to, to do and to do. You have to put some work in, basically, for mm. epistemic curiosity. But of course, it's inc- then it becomes incredibly fulfilling. You get into this virtuous cycle where the more you know about this thing, 
the more you want to know, right? Yeah. Whether, whether or not your, your, your chosen, you know, field of, of knowledge is um, physics or, or, or literature or, 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 you know, sport, you know, whatever it is, music, doesn't matter. You're building on the knowledge you already have. That takes a bit more concentration, a bit more effort. It's a bit more conscious. And so epistemic curiosity is really what happens to diversity curiosity when it grows up right it's um you you take that instinct to go oh i need that new information and you're saying okay but then train yourself to look for the information that links up with the information you already have mm. and you get into this wonderful lifelong cycle of a very kind of fulfilling curiosity yeah you link that to how we go about um learning and it has a lot to do with long-term versus short-term memory and in the book you sort of go off on a slight tangent to discuss this because and i find it really interesting can you explain like and I think for anyone who's, I don't know, over the age of 40, they're probably going to want to know what you're about to tell us in terms of how we can build on sort of long-term memory, which once you're a certain age, you can draw on a lot more easily than the short-term memory. Can you explain all of that through that lens of, of curiosity? Yeah. So if you think about anybody who is an, an, an expert at what they do, right? It's just somebody who really clearly knows like a huge amount about, you know, playing chess or history or, 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 or kind of in a more kind of cognitive physical sense, you know, movement, sport, dance, whatever. Then there's somebody who has basically spent their lives or, or you know, being curious about, about their subject and accumulating knowledge and uh, epistemically and putting it in the database of long-term memory. And so when they kind of, get see the answer really quickly and you think my god how did you do that it's almost like a magic trick you know so sort of intuitively brilliant it's because they're drawing on this database of, of long-term memory and so they don't have to spend as much time as you looking at something and working it through their short-term mm. memory your short-term memory is is you know you can hold apparently you know around seven numbers in your head at any one time right it's very very limited and so you can't rely on it. You can't say, well, I'll just go to any field and I'll kind of immediately learn about it because your short term memory is pretty weak. What you need to do is over time build up this kind of long term database of knowledge. And that actually speeds up your brain. So the human brain is kind of not it's like a computer in some ways, but in some ways it's the opposite of a computer. If I load up your laptop here with you know lots of data, it's going to slow down and you kind of want to delete the files at some point. And the human brain works exactly the other way around, right? The more you know about something, the faster you will see the patterns, the faster you will get to, to, yeah. to, 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 to the answers. So epistemic curiosity, that's really what it's about. It's about building that... that, that, Sleep, that building that muscle. Building that muscle, right? It's a, it's a muscle. You have to work it. And the more you do that, the, 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 the better it will work, the, the faster your processing power will, will, will be. And basically, the smarter you get, right? Yeah, and you can see where Google presents a problem because we can we I think a lot of people and myself included we quite often go oh look I don't need to go and actually learn that or deep dive or get really curious about it because if ever I need to look it up I can just google it and I think you use the phrase that we're a culture that's really based on answers rather than than questions and the asking of of really clever questions. I think there's that quote from Chekhov, is it the role of the artist is to simply, was it ask better questions? Is that yeah. kind of, have I got that right? Yeah. 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 And and there's a quote from the, the, the technologist, Kevin Kelly, he, and he says, this guy's one of, one of the kind of Silicon Valley gurus. And so, you know, he's not a kind of against the internet or technology, kind of incredibly passionate about it. 
But what he says is what Google and so on are doing is, is they're providing us with an excess of answers, right? So answers are now everywhere, right? We've got, you know, almost infinite amount of, of answers. That's what machines do. That's what AI will do, right? Even more so. And what happens in economics when you have a kind of huge supply of something? It becomes cheap. It becomes less valuable. And what Curly says, and I agree with him, it's basically what Chekhov was saying, is that the the power, the value of questions is actually going to go up. So actually the innovators and the kind of most interesting artists of the future are the people who are really good at asking questions, not the people who are going to go, here, I've got the answer. Because you can get the answer now, right? You can, you can get a top line answer as yeah. in, in, in a second. But to be really good at, at asking questions, you actually have to know stuff, right? You have to, ha- you know, you have to come to a field and say, right, I've got, I've absorbed all this information and knowledge about this field in my long term memory, right? Mm. So actually, I can, I can see where the interesting questions are. And it's the interesting questions which, which kind of open up new kind of fields of knowledge. Yeah, I totally get that. I've interviewed the sort of English slash American poet David White some time back on this podcast and here's a wonderful phrase. He always says there's always a more beautiful question that you can ask and and he almost says that the the way that we need to go about life is finding that more beautiful question that's generally just a layer or two under the obvious one. I think that's right and I think that second part is really important because Sometimes it's phrased like, oh, question's wonderful. And, and, and this is kind of suggestion that you can just wander into any kind of field of, of knowledge and mm. say, oh, I'm just going to ask my amazing question. <laughs> well, you're going to really annoy people who know just a little bit about it if you do that too much. And you're not actually going to. So, so actually, you know, the, the two things are connected, right? Knowledge and asking good questions are, are, are connected, right? So you, you can't cheat it. Is you what you're can't saying. cheat it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that we're all having to start to learn. I mean, when we think about the debate around AI and generalized AI, we're in a huge panic about it. The debate is, you know, we're in it right now, the debate. We don't know where it's going to end up. But I think one of the obvious worries is that it's going to change what our brains have to be engaged in. So if we thought Google killed curiosity, chat GPT could bury it six foot under. That could be a real concern. But I'm wondering if it's actually a case of that AI can solve sort of these obvious puzzles, probably leaves the human brain freed up to to deal with questions that speak to the mystery of life. And maybe before you even sort of comment on that, I probably should get you to distinguish between puzzles and mysteries because I think that's a really right. interesting delineation as well. Yeah, so so it, it sort of roughly lines up with this diversive versus epistemic curiosity distinction. But so so puzzles are things with a definite answer, things that you can solve, right? So a puzzle is a crossword puzzle, right? A wordle. Yeah, a, a wordle, right? A mystery is something where, where the question is never fully answered. So, so science, scientists are actually, they see science more as a mystery than, than, than a puzzle, right? They know that every answer they get just opens up a new question. And that's why they love it, right? Because this is kind of the, the, the questions ne- never stop. You can think about this in terms of stories. So great storytellers are, are great at sort of exercising your curiosity, right? So they give you a little bit of information, but they don't give you all of it. They leave open-ended questions, right? They ask beautiful questions. They ask beautiful questions. Okay, so, so let me let me contrast two different types of stories. So, say you have an Agatha Christie book, right? And an Agatha Christie book is brilliantly written, and I don't want to denigrate it, but, but it is a puzzle. It's not a mystery. Even though it sells itself as a mystery. Yeah, it sells <laughs> itself as a mystery, but actually, paradoxically, it's a puzzle. Because you basically, when you work out who's done it, 
That's it. It's right? done. You probably don't want to go back and read that book. People yeah. don't read Agatha Christie twice, I, I don't think. I mean, some people read, but probably mm. most people don't, right? Whereas uh, a book like The Great Gatsby, say, right, mm. or, or whatever your favourite kind of novel is, is more of a mystery, right? I, I, I'll, I'll always be wondering about Gatsby and what he was like as a character, and I could never kind what of run out. What does the green light mean? Uh, what does the green light mean? And, and what, what did he really think about Daisy and were they in love? And those questions aren't meant to be answered. If you could answer them easily, it wouldn't be a good book, right? So that's a mystery. So I think, yeah, in literature, literature science, but actually kind of oh, life generally, some, some questions are, are posed as puzzles, some post- questions are posed as, mm. as mysteries. Uh, and I think the most interesting, sustaining, long-term, fulfilling ones to pursue are, are, are the mysteries. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, back to the the statement I made, and I took you on a little bit of a a circuit there. But you know, ChatGPT and AI really as a knowledge system, I think we've all got a sense that it's going to be able to do almost that diversive kind of curious piece. You know, it's going to be able to go and hunt down answers more effectively than our brains can do it. But some of the really interesting dialogue around all of this, which I find really interesting because it's actually kind of spiritual and philosophical, it's like, okay, well, what distinguishes us from these robots? And they're really interesting questions to be asked, asking, I think, at the moment or at any time in history. And I do think that we could, once again, use the technology for good to free us up to go and ask the more beautiful questions, to deal with the mystery of life, you know. What do you think of that? I mean, are you somebody who feels that this technology is just going to doom us to this, I don't know, incurious way of going about life because the answers are just there at all times and we're not going to go and explore and go into the unknown and and play with uncertainty, you know, and beautiful literature. What are your thoughts there? Well, it could. I mean, again, I think it's kind of up to us, right, one of the things that I've noticed now, written about in The Ruffian, is that in some ways we're already becoming more like machines and robots ourselves, right? We're kind of going to meet them halfway. So Yeah, we're worried about AIs becoming more like humans, but you're saying humans we should be becoming, worried about us becoming more like yeah, exactly, AI like, robots. So, so, you know, you get, get an AI to, to, to write an essay about the American Revolution and just give it a thousand words and explain it. It'll write a kind of decent essay, which is incredible, but it'll be very kind of shallow and 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 not very. It won't kind of raise many interesting questions. It'll just say, you know, here's a kind of superficial account. Now, as as some teachers and academics have pointed out already, 
those answers actually resembled a lot of the ones that they're getting from their students at the, <laughs> at the moment. You know, that kind of thin layer of BS kind of knowledge where you go, yeah, okay, I've, I've done the requirement here, but I haven't really said anything original that unique or interesting. Or, or ask questions. questions. Or ask questions. Delved right? into mystery. Uh, yeah. I haven't provoked any questions, haven't I? Right. And you see that kind of problem in lots of different fields, music, film, I think. You're seeing kind of cultural production becoming a little bit more predictable, a bit more systematized, a little bit more closed in kind of what the possibilities are because it's driven by data. So, so it's all these fields are kind of increasingly data driven. So in that sense, we're already becoming more machine like and uh, across kind of various different fields of human activity. And I think that's something we have to be incredibly wary of because you're right. What, what AI, as machines get smarter, the way we should see it is not as a threat, but as a raising of the bar. You know, how, how can we be more human, right? So, yeah, so which is a great that's question. That's a great challenge, mm. right? And I think, you know, we're still working out the answers to that. We probably all, always will. It's, uh, but one of them is to be more kind of unpredictable and unique in our own individuality, I think. So, so, mm. so you know, I think the question of, you know, having an in- individual voice in, in a metaphorical sense, like somebody that people come to, this is why Substack is interesting in that in that regard. You know, people don't come to my Substack because there's information there that they can't get anywhere else, right? To, to some extent, they, you know, I might show them things that they haven't seen before. But what they're really coming for is because they think that I'm an interesting voice. And whatever I write about, they'll go, okay, well, that's You're very slant. Ian Leslie kind of a way to, way to do it, right? So let's not talk about me anymore, but let's talk about artists, right? The artists you really admire are just incredibly individual. You know, the voice of literally the voice of, of a Billie Holiday or, or, or the sound of Miles Davis's trumpet, whatever it is, or Billie Eilish, right? The reason they're so amazing is that there's just nobody else in the world mm. like them. They're, they're drawn on lots of influences, and you might kind of see the influences in their work, but they've taken all those influences and they, they turned them into something so distilled and so them that it's just sort of uh, uh, incredibly compelling. And I think that is actually the best kind of model for the way we should think about our own kind of careers you know it's like okay well how can I be more like me in whatever I'm doing and not just like everyone else and do you feel that curiosity is sort of the path to that like cultivating it and can we cultivate it and if so what are some ways to do that so obviously I I, that's that's what I think I mean curiosity is is the way that you it's it's one kind of way for you to absorb and assimilate or find, first of all, and then absorb and assimilate as many different influences as you can. So influences I'm using in a broad sense, right? So whatever you're into, whether whether it's 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 music or or, or business, leadership, whatever it is, you should be looking for as many kind of different models of, of how to do that as, as you can. You should be interested in all kinds of different music if, if you're a, a pop musician. You should be interested in all kinds of different leadership if, if you're a business leader, right? You should be looking across different fields, right? Do you do that? Because it's, we get stuck in algorithms, right? Like I witness it in myself. You know, my reading takes a particular slant. And recently I wrote on my Substack about, you know, I've made a, an effort to actually step sort of right of right of my leftist positioning just to sort of understand some other you know discussions and what's great is once you sort of go down that rabbit hole you get led on to more such thoughts and and you can actually really explore in a curious way this is on substack 
how do you go about it? Like, what do you do to to look at as many different types of? Well, so it depends on the kind of the field, but let's talk about the you know politics and so on because I think that's an interesting one. Because people often say, oh, you should seek out kind of opposite, you know, voices that you disagree with and follow them on Twitter and so on. And then, and then, so you do, and you end up with these like terrible people kind of shouting slogans at you, and you're like. I was right in the first place. These people are awful. True. It confirms your bias, <laughs> it confirms right? confirms your bias. So you have to be careful about that. I, I think what you're trying to do, and, and it's not always easy, is try and seek out people that you that you respect or like, for, for maybe for other reasons, maybe you just think they're a decent person or they're a funny person, who have different views or who are from a different part of the political spectrum. If you can find those people, you know, cherish them. They're, they're incredibly important. We just need some other kind of form of connection to, to, to somebody. Mm. Once we have that connection, we can go, okay, well, I'm going to listen to what you have to say, even though I d- disagree with it. So seek out basically the best exponents of the opposite view. You know, and I really think make an effort and find them. And once you find them, don't, don't, don't let go of them because, as I say, they're not always easy to find. So, yeah, I, I do think that we should be listening to, to people from, from outside our, our bubble, but not just anybody. Mm. You know, try and find people that you have Discern, some sort discerning of... Discerning thinkers. Yeah. I interrupted you, though. You said the first thing is to look for as many different models within the sphere of what you're interested in. What's another one? Yeah, so so come back coming back to this question of you know finding your individual voice and, and being an individual. Paradoxically, that also means absorbing as many influences and, and from from as wide a field as, as as you can. And again, that's that's what artists do. Right? Artists and musicians are quite a kind of good writers. They're quite, so artists in the broad sense are a good kind of model for I think the way that all of us have mm. to kind of think and behave, which is. They're, they're always looking to their peers and predecessors for, for new ideas, but they're always struggling not to just imitate them, right? They're, they're always saying, okay, I'm going to take this, but how can I do it my way, right? And, and basically, you see a lot of bad artists or bad writers who just say, well, I'm, you can see when they're basically just copying another style. Often that happens early in an artist's career. They, they start to just sort of say, well, I'm going to be a bit like this. Yeah, person. they're finding yeah. their feet. And they're finding their I know feet. I was like that as a writer. I yeah. used to read all the British, American and Australian columnists, you know, generally female columnists who had a really strong voice. And I would study how did they get their first paragraph to sing, you know? And, you know, we're talking Zoe Williams, Barbara Ellen, Maureen Dowd over in the States, that kind of thing. And I would, you know, fastidiously do that. This is in my early 20s. And I really realised that I was almost writing in their voice. But after a couple of years, I sort of branched out. So I think there's something to be said for using your influences as training wheels. Um, oh, absolutely. And I think what you just, just described is a fantastic thing to do. And, you know, whatever field you're in, you know, look to the people you use think are really good and really look at what they're doing really try and get you know some writers have sometimes talked about you know actually writing out a paragraph from an author they really just so they can feel the kind of words coming through them and and, and, Mm. or reading it out loud or or I think David Foster Wallace said he would read a page of F. Scott Fitzgerald or whatever it was and then he would put that book aside and he would try and recreate it from memory which is interesting because then he would kind of like half he would have some of that mm. writer in him and, and some of it would would be him and it was kind of now eventually you want to kind of achieve liftoff and escape velocity and kind of you go into your own kind of universe but but you have to go through that stage where you're kind of taking in all this fuel and then you're kind of turning it into something original and unique and new mm. okay was there more that we can do to cultivate curiosity in a world that's going to desperately require it 
the, the key thing I want people to understand is that it is, as you say, it's a muscle and you use it or, or lose it. After a certain age, anyway, you know, children have this incredible gift of curiosity. That is biologically programmed, right? Mm. But what tends to happen is curiosity starts to kind of go down because we've worked out the knowledge that we need to get by in the world. And we're no longer exploring. We, we're just exploiting. And when you're sitting next to an incurious person, that's what's happened. They've gone, OK, I know how to get through this conversation because I've been through the hundred, hundreds of these. And they're probably like that at work as well. You know, I know how to do this job and I'm never yeah. going to try and get better at it because I, I just know. So don't let yourself become more one of those people. Always think, OK, well, how can I actually, what can I learn? What can I read? Who can I talk to in order to kind of get a new perspective on, on this? And I think it's a combination of a kind of it's diverse of an epistemic curiosity. So a it's kind of the urge to you know get yourself off the beaten path, go and read something different, go and do something different. But also it's making sure that you you specialize. You have a few different things that you're always building. So it's never just random you know magpie like curiosity. It's always well sometimes it is yeah that's fine. But but you're also you're also kind of building on mm, so, sort of um, fine tuning and honing yeah and, and kind of on existing kind of bodies of knowledge in your long term long term memory. So make sure you have a few things where you're pretty sure that you know more about those things than ninety nine percent of people. All right, and it might be like just music you know it might be soul music or, or, or it might be 17th century history but just have a few of those things where you're like well I know more than most people about this and and once you worked out what those are keep building and building those yeah that's nice it, 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 you become the interesting person at the dinner party at the very least at the very least and mm. actually you know it but also it can it can feed into your or into your work and into into all sorts of things you never know the cross fertilization of these different fields of knowledge is incredibly important you never know where ideas are going to come from you famous example of Steve Jobs, who studied calligraphy at, at, at university. Typography and so and for, on. Yeah, mm. and, and for no other reason that he was curious about Well, fonts. he quit, didn't he? He quit and then he would sit in on lectures on typography and he despaired at the time, I think in his Stanford address he talks about this. He despaired, like, where's this all going? And yeah. wonderful, I, I love the way he puts it. He said that they just looked like these random dots on a page and then, you know, with after a few years, he started to realise they actually linked up, you know. And, and then he started to really get into it. And then uh, a few years later, when they're designing the, the Apple Mac interface, he says, no, we need not just kind of boring computer text here. We want actual fonts. I know, I understand fonts. I understand the shapes of, of words now. And, and that's why we have them on Microsoft Word, because then Microsoft kind of rips off Apple. So, and, and that's why we have kind of all these fonts available to us, right? It was just from, from this guy following his curiosity, worrying about whether or not he was wasting his time, that it comes back later and it becomes kind of, a, yeah. it creates a huge amount of value. So the other thing about curiosity is that you'll often think, am I wasting my time here? And frankly, you'll never know. And you just have to learn to, to put that anxiety to one side and say, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm curious about this. Well, but it's got to have intrinsic value, it's, it's doesn't it, at the time? It's got intrinsic value, exactly. Mm. And, and often the, the extrinsic rewards come later. But, but you, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't worry too much about whether or not they'll come, but often they do. Yeah, it reminds me of something I write about as a salve to a bunch of things, in part anxiety, is soul nerding. I call it soul nerding, where you go and study the works of people who have struggled in the same way you have or at, you know, times in history that are similar to our own. And you actually then start to take on their resilient mindset, whatever wisdoms they've had to arrive at. You start to just sort of take That's it right. on. But look, there's a bit of a subtext to your book, and that is a little bit of a worry that curiosity is decreasing and we 
uh, sort of almost been trained by technology to devalue it. At a time in history, and I, I suspect you agree with me, where there's going to be more uncertainty, there's going to be less sort of answers to the human experience. Sure, more answers on, you know, when the French Revolution started, you know, and, and it more easily accessible. But the big questions of consciousness, what life's meant to be about, and also how the hell we're going to survive and, and sort out these very complex problems. There's just more questions than answers. So, you know, the subtitle of your book, have I got this right? Was it why your future depends on it? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, why do you feel our future depends on becoming more curious? Well, in, in short, because cu cu curious people, people who are in the habit of, of practicing curiosity, are better able to deal with unpredictability because they are they are constantly kind of exercising that learning muscle. And so when new situations arise, they don't get hugely flustered. They're like, okay, well, this is a, an opportunity for me to, to learn. That's more and more important in, in a kind of very professional or, or basic way, you know, as the world runs on, on software more and more, which is, and technology is kind of changing at, at a fast rate. You know, your job is always being affected by the latest developments in technology. Are you going to be somebody who's just like, oh, my God, I don't want any more change? Mm. Or are you going to be somebody who's like, fine, yeah, OK, I can adapt to this and it's really interesting and I'm going to get into it. Are you going to be able to collaborate with kind of very cognitively diverse teams of specialists and get a bit curious about what they all do and understand a bit all, all the different kinds of specialisms in your field? Well, if you are, you're going to be a better collaborator and therefore you're, you're, you're going to be a more valued employee. And then in a kind of more wider existential sense, I suppose, just think about the last few years. Maybe we'll go back to the financial crisis whenever that, you know, 15 years ago. But then we think about Trump. We think about Brexit. We think about the, the, the pandemic. The world is getting weirder and more unpredictable, it would, would mm -hmm. be my kind of summary, because it's just so incredibly vastly complex now. And the latest kind of huge disruptor is, is AI. That's only going to make things weirder over the mm. next few years, right? And so, you know, I think we went through a long period of relative stability. The, the, the instability, the weirdness, the, the, the scariness of it in, in some sense, you know, climate change again, is going to be the, the norm. And so I just think, although you're not always going to be happy about those changes, you can be curious about them. And, and I think if you are, that's, that's going to help. Mm. I think there's also going to be changes in the workplace and, you know, what I guess young people need to be studying. I think we were sort of a decade or two ago, things got very generalist. And then over the last decade or so, it's become very specific, right? So the various careers have all siphoned off into specialised fields and people have got quite myopic in their way they're thinking. But we're going to have to open back up again, aren't we, in terms of being able to dance between different professions because they're changing so fast. We're yeah. hearing that AI could potentially wipe out a whole range of professions that we take for granted the law profession is going to suffer massively because AI will be able to sift through large amounts of, you know, previous cases and, and do that part of the workload. So I'm wondering, is one of the solutions to really bring back liberal arts as, as, a, yeah. as a study? I, I mean, I, I think so. Partly because it gives you a kind of wide angle view on, on humanity that, that perhaps you don't get um, when you kind of just specialise. You know, liberal arts are help you to understand the human condition in its broadest sense, right? Whether it's the literature or humanity or, or, or history. It helps you to ask questions, complex questions. Yeah. And, and to 
to sit in mystery, to sit in the unknown. I think that's, yeah, what, very well put. And, and, you know, if there's one thing that AI does really, really well, it is specialised narrowly. In fact, it's really the, the kind of only thing it can do, right? Now, at some point, there'll be artificial general intelligence. We don't know when, and we don't really know what, what, what that will be like. But right now, it's more like, you know, machine learning programs are more like kind of dishwashers than they are like all-purpose robots, which is kind of how we imagined them 20 or 30 years ago. Dishwasher can wash your dishes. If you try and give it even something slightly different and put your clothes into it, it's going to freak out. And, or and, just wash know, it as it did a dish. Yeah, yeah. And just create, it'll just damage things, right? Mm. And that's basically what, what kind of AI ap- applications are at the moment. They're incredibly good incredibly good at at, at very specialized tasks. So again, going back to this question, you know, as AI gets better, do we try and emulate AI? No, no, no. Humans should be better at being human. If there's one thing we should specialize in, it's that in a sense, right? Mm. Um, And that's really what the opportunity. And it is an opportunity. You should see it as a challenge and a raising of the bar. We all should individually, but also, you know, just collectively. Mm. I, I like that. I liked seeing things through that lens because it's certainly a positive way to look at things. It doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. I think that's a wonderful note to finish that part of the conversation on, but I follow you on Substack, on the the Ruffian. You have a lot of interests. You're curious about a lot of things. What are you curious about at the moment? What are you sort of deep diving into at the moment? What are topics on your radar? Yeah, okay, so good question. Because at the moment I'm just thinking about what what how happiness works. <laughs> Obviously a big question, right? There was an interesting study I saw recently which looked at the gender gap in, in happiness, yes. which is a sort of well-established. Came out of the US and also looked at, uh, I think, the gay community as well. Um, oh, right. Mm. Okay. Maybe that's a, I'm not sure if that's the same one. But but this is a field that, you know, psychologists have been looking at it a, a while. And they, they see that, that women tend to have more mental health issues, tend to have more episodes of, of bad mood and, and, and sort of um, unhappiness than, than, than men. But then this study found something paradoxical, which was that, they found that again, but they also found that women are overall more satisfied in the in the kind of broader sense of how their life is going. Greater sense of purpose, greater sense of direction, greater and sense also of happy with their jobs and their pay, which right. is really interesting. Really now, interesting. Mm. So, I, and I now the gender thing is interesting in itself, but I, I've kind of gone slightly adjacent to that, and, and I'm asking a question, which is like. What's the difference between those two types of happiness? And does one depend on the other? So so we often talk about mental health and unhappiness as things that we just need to wipe out and minimise and make them go away. But actually, A, they're just kind of unavoidable part of life and we shouldn't freak out when we get unhappy or depressed, right? That's kind of like a normal adjustment to events sometimes. But B, maybe that sense of struggle and difficulty and pain and, and suffering sometimes actually kind of enriches our lives and, and ultimately kind of makes us more satisfied, right? So, and I think that is an ancient theme. You see that again in, in literature and from back to Homer, right? But it's not something that I see widely recognised in the culture at the moment. I think we kind of think, well, somebody's either happy or they're unhappy. If they're unhappy, that's bad. Get them happy. Well, we've lost the the, the, the conversation around the building of resilience, that yeah. hardship and sacrifice is what can often lead to our greatest satisfaction. Yeah. You know, I'm sounding like Jordan Peterson here, but th- that is something that we, we've we really lost the art of because we've put all of our attention into eliminating discomfort, you know? Yes, exactly. And yeah. smoothing out the edges to the point where life just feels really beige. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And so, and so I, that's what I'm kind of thinking about. The these these two different kinds of happiness. This kind of happiness, which as a form of pleasure. So, so there, there was a there's a philosophical kind of mind thought experiment where they say if you could inject yourself with a, a substance that just put you in a in, in a better mood forever. I mean, I guess we have those in terms of pills. Would would, would you do that? And I don't know, the answer is not straightforward. I mean, yeah. in some ways, like the whole point of being human is to go through kind of fluctuations mm. in, in your and in, in kind of twists and turns in, in the journey rather than just kind of constantly being. Stephen Fry asked a similar question. He did a documentary on bipolar and he is quite outspoken about the fact that he has bipolar. And I think there were 14 people that were involved in the documentary who had bipolar and he asked all of them, would you... You know, if you could take a magic pill and not be bipolar and lead a life that way, would you? And all of them said no. Oh, really? Mm. Mm. Yeah, because they, they feel like their life would just be calmer but 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 duller. I'm also interested, just as a way, if you don't mind me rambling on here. But, yeah, please do. But, <laughs> whether or not just some people are just have a narrower emotional range than others, right? And I don't see that really kind of reflected in the literature and in, in, in psychology and science and so on, or, or generally in life, right? I, I think I have a relatively narrow emotional range. Like I'm rarely that far off the kind of like happy or contented point, right? Lucky me, great. No, and, and I am- I'm the opposite. Right, you're the opposite. <laughs> I do all of the emotions right. at full throttle. Right. Yeah. And it just seems to me like there isn't one better way to be, but there are different, very different kind of experiences of the world. And some people go, oh, well, well, aren't you lucky? Well, yes, I am in some ways. In other ways, I think I have a kind of thinner, shallower experience of the world than some, somebody like you, right? There are advantages and disadvantages of both kind of ways of being. But I also think like it's, it seems to me like a really kind of important distinction that I don't actually see kind of... People mm. tend to say, well, that person's just a really depressive person or that person's like a really, really happy person. That's one way of looking at it. But that kind of misses out this slightly more subtle distinction, which is just the amount of range that, that people have. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious about that too. Yeah. Hey, thanks for rounding off the conversation with some things to be curious about. I think it illustrates your point beautifully. Yeah, I, I look forward to reading more about it in your newsletter. And thanks for meeting me here in London. Thank you very much, Sarah. Enjoyed it. Okay, so some breezy take-homes from that conversation. Well, we can, in fact, cultivate curiosity again and indeed should and indeed it's mature and adult to do so. We do this by looking at different models and influences within a bunch of areas we're interested in. I throw in this idea of soul nerding, the sort of conscious studying of people who are wiser, perhaps smarter than us, you know, people throughout history who've written books on sort of the kinds of questions about life and what matters that we are in fact asking at the moment. Which brings me back to the chat with Dr. Judd Brewer I mentioned in the intro and in the conversation. Judd argues curiosity is an opening and expansive experience and thus can help us manage anxiety. I think this openness it creates in the amygdala can serve a bunch of purposes and the kinds of purposes that Ian points to in our conversation. The main insight I gleaned from our chat is that curiosity, by virtue of it taking us to the mysteries of life rather than to solving puzzles with absolutes, sees us getting better at being human, getting us connecting with and 
honouring our humanness, which is vital as we contemplate the role of AI in our lives. This is a conversation that I think we're all embroiled in at the moment. Humans should be specialising in being human, as Ian says. There's an opportunity to be grabbed here and with all the changes and uncertainties that we face, it's to basically get super curious. Now, I've put the link to Ian's The Ruffian Substack in the show notes. My Substack is also where I do all of my engagement these days. The comments thread is where I direct my curiosity. It's a wild place with really smart and wise people chiming in. I hope to see you over there. It's sarahwilson.substack.com and I'll put that in the show notes. It's free to get the once a week newsletter, but I do more intimate deep dives twice a week uh, with the paid community. Anyway, my friends, stay wild. Stay wild.